had the privilege of getting to know Ken and Mary a little bit more in our um, Disciple Growth Track uh, class on Wednesday night. They were at my table and and uh, appreciated Mary's uh, testimony of the fact she's a self-proclaimed introvert. So even an introvert can get up front and look at, oh, I mean, there's, a, there's getting to be a lot of you. <laughs> Every time I get up, it's like, there's more and there's more. And so it's, it's can be an intimidating thing, not to scare the rest of you away, but Mary is the example. You can do it. It can get done. Amen. All right. Great job, folks. I appreciate that. Also, I just want to uh, say thank you to a, a, a team of guys that um, only get recognized when things aren't going well. That is our sound crew. <laughs> uh, things sound amazing this morning. And, uh, and, and I know that both Ron uh, Dunbar, Ron Whitney, Ben Parker, they've all been working a lot over the last few weeks to figure out some of the challenges that we've been having and sorting through those things and then trying to come up with solutions economically and all these sorts of things. So I just really appreciate all the work that goes into that, um, you know, with Ben and then with Ron Whitney and Ron Dunbar. And, and it's like, imagine we get all this done. I'm setting up a joke. Um, you get all this done with two Rons. What does a church need? Morons. So, so, uh, usually those, usually, usually those, those two guys are the, the punchline of that joke amongst the worship team, but this time I tried to avoid that, so. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and he's an elder, too. That's probably a bad move on my part. Uh, this morning, as we get into our text, that uh, the Connors read a portion of the, the, the text. Again, being an introvert, aren't you glad I didn't give you the whole chapter that we're doing here today? Um, but uh, we are going to go beyond those first 13 verses in our study. And so, again, we're covering a lot of real estate, so we have to do a bit of a survey, a bit of a flyover, but hopefully uh, we'll be able to spend sufficient time in the text to explain what's going on here and really what are you and I supposed to do with what we're hearing this morning. Because um, I find that uh, folks in my kind of position or in my role are always challenging people to take on the the adventure or the risks in life because of all that God has planned. And then sometimes that message can come from people that occupy a pulpit like I do. And it sounds very self-serving in a sense, like, you know, you, the whole your best life now kind of mindset that there's so much more for you to take hold of in this world. And if you just go out and get it. And so it becomes a tricky message, but I do believe that there is some truth to the underlying elements of the fact that God didn't intend for our lives to be lived just mundanely or just without the pursuit of some higher goals. The problem is, as we talk about often in our church and our various settings and things, is that the human heart, the, the focus, the motivation, and the intentions of what's inside of us really can't be trusted to determine what are the best pursuits. What are the things that I should be giving my time and my attention to, my finances, all that sort of stuff? And apart from Jesus and apart from his call in the gospel, those things get wayward and they actually set us on a course towards hell. And so I, I, I struggle a little bit with how we talk about these things because we are going to be talking about the overall subject of persecution and the role that it has 
in the life of the believer and the life of the church collectively. And so we have to take on persecution in a sense with some gusto, if you will, or some mindset that shifts that gear and says, I've got to accept some of this in my life and I got to look towards embracing some of this. And so if I'm not careful, it could sound a little bit like I'm just trying to hype you up to motivate you, almost like a, a boxer in the ring saying, hit me harder, hit me harder. I can take it. But that ends up kind of welling up within us, this kind of flesh, this determination not to be kept down, not to be held back and. And then that doesn't sound at all like the gospel. Really what we want to see is that Jesus wells up within us, that his life, that his character, that his conduct comes up within us to face all of these situations. And that's what we're going to be seeing in the narrative of chapter four today. But I am uh, probably a bit like some of you where I say I desire a peaceful life. I mean, I, I drive by this house in my commute sometimes and I just look at it and the house itself isn't all that spectacular. It's just that it's so nicely done. Like I picture the owner out there with scissors getting the lawn just, you know, like it just looks perfect. It looks like one of those simulated homes off a computer screen or something. And everything is perfect. The landscape is exactly what I have no idea who these people are. I don't know what's going on underneath that roof. I don't know what's the condition of their hearts, their health their anything. But when I see that house, something in me just desires that that represents rest for me. That represents finally arriving. That's making it. I don't know why. I guess I like things neatly and in order and stuff. And I look at that and I go, that just looks like the kind of place you can retire in, chill, no more you know, in my life, no more barns to renovate, no more landscaping to figure out, no more mulch to order, all those kinds of things. Like it just represents peace and tranquility to me. Like I said, I've got no idea what's going on in the lives of the people that occupy that home. What my wife will tell you is when I say, I just really want some time off opportunity to put my feet up and everything, she'll say that doesn't last very long. Like there's a, there's a restlessness within me that wants to just staying still and, and chill and enjoying the peace and whatever happens and stuff like, like just expecting, yeah, this is the way life is going to be. It doesn't last very long with me. And I suspect with many of you. On one side of my mouth, I can sound like Bilbo Baggins. Yes, I'm going there, Lord of the Rings. When Gandalf comes and meets him as an adult and says, I'm looking for someone to share an adventure with. And Bilbo, like any good hobbit, looks offended and disgusted by the suggestion that we would leave this perfect, tranquil life of the Shire to go on some adventure. He goes, no, you aren't going to find any hobbit that wants to go in there because they're nasty and uncomfortable and make you late for supper, he says. Adventures weren't appealing to him because they call us out of our comfort zone and they lead us into difficult things. And so there's a side of us that would resist that because we think that what we have is predictable and safe. But really, when we find predictable and safe, we say there's got to be something more, right? It's because I believe the Lord's built within us a desire to live an extraordinary life. But as I said before, we have to wrestle with this thing called our flesh, our heart of hearts, the true us on the inside all the time to define what does more look like? What's what's the godly kind of more in my life that I should be pursuing? And I think we're going to see some of this spelling out for us right here off the pages of scripture today. 
Last week, we were looking at the healing of the man who was born lame. He was unable to walk, unable to stand on his own. He had to get carried to the beautiful gate. He was completely dependent on others, including from a, a charitable sense. He didn't have any financial income, so he begged day in and day out uh, for uh, his needs to be met. Until Peter fixes his gaze on him, the scripture says that he notices him and says, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I have, I offer to you. So in the name of the son of God, rise, walk. And he says, I'm not just walking. I'm jumping up. I'm leaping. I'm cartwheeling. I'm, you're not going to be able to slow me down from here on out. And I think that in this scenario that we looked at in chapter three, And the subsequent results that we're going to get into here in chapter four reveal that God intended to lead his people on an adventure. And not just in the typical interpretation that we'd be involved in the cool healing stuff or that we'd be able to run and leap and jump. No, instead, it's an adventure of doing the things that require God to be God, that we trust him, that we walk into territories and spaces that are unfamiliar to us, that are uncontrollable by us to see what God's hand will do, to to see what his healing, his timing, his purposes look like instead of our own. And if we're being honest, that's quite an adventure because it runs counter to the way in which we were born and the which way we've been practicing ever since we were saying wah, wah, wah in a cradle. So what did last week's message show us? It showed us, for one, that God is extremely patient with lost sinners. Do you remember Peter in his sermon, in his response, he had healed the, the man that was born crippled, and so that he said, well, seeing an opportunity here to speak and to testify how I was able to do this, he took advantage of it, and he started speaking clearly, but he said to the Jews who were present, he said, you killed the Messiah. You killed the Son of God who made this healing possible. He hit him right between the eyes. But then he says to him, he says, but you did it out of ignorance. You didn't know that he was the Messiah that we've been waiting for, that he was the savior of the world. There was compassion in his, in his, um, in his provocation. He was, he was bringing them to his side so he would encourage them to hear that salvation could be found in the same one that they killed. So if that doesn't prove God's patience, I don't know what does. And he would point it out in the Old Testament scripture from the prophets of old. He would say, even going back that far, we all knew this was going to happen. So in a sense, you are playing the part that you are going to play, not not removed from your personal responsibility. You still made up your mind and you participated, but God knew this would happen and he intended to use it all along for your salvation. Also, we saw that this was in order to give the good news. You have to deliver the bad. We had a bit of a master class in preaching from Peter last week because he walked them to the point of conviction. He brought them to look in the mirror and say, everything that you've done has made you guilty before the holiness of God. And and allowed them to feel the sting of that rather than just saying, hey, look, we're all living under God's forgiveness and didn't just camp out on the ignorance part. He walked them through the embarrassing and the painful process of seeing that they had really missed it and they had missed it big time. We also saw, too, that if we're going to reach more people, if there are groups or masses of people to be reached, it will not be at the expense of the individual. 
This is interesting as we heard uh, Gordon's presentation earlier about our opportunity in the in the city and with the soup kitchen and different opportunities like that, that uh, any sites that we have and wanting to see more people added and all these kinds of things, if we start getting more fixated on that than the individual that's along the way, we'll miss the mark as a lot of churches are waking up to discover uh, in this day and age. If the goal is just more and more and more and we skip over the individual, then we really haven't conducted ourselves as Jesus did. But in the section that we're going into here, we're going to see that it's impossible to argue with a changed life. As, as, a, as a representative of the power that was just demonstrated and the reality of the resurrected Savior, they have a man who can jump and leap and stand on his own that couldn't do any of that for 40 years. Really hard to argue with. And I know many of you in this room have a story in your life that a lot of people are like, well, I mean, I know it's definitely worked for you. I'm just saying it's not for me. It's clear to them that some change, some radical transformation has taken place in your life and they can't argue with it. There is no better testimony to the Lord's power and his resurrection than a changed life. In fact, an old turn of the, the last century, I should say, uh, evangelist Samuel Chadwick, before he would go into an area and, and preach the gospel to many people, he would always ask the Lord, Lord, give me a Lazarus in that town. Give me the one who is so far gone. Give me the person who is so um, given up on by the society of that area that if he came to Christ, if she came to Christ, they would all say, okay, clearly the Lord's been doing something because that person was, was lost as far as we are concerned. Beyond hope, he would pray for that Lazarus. And I think also what we're going to see here pretty clearly is that Satan is always ready to oppose the believer. And you and I need to keep a sharp eye out for that. So if we are going to live this life of adventure and we're going to strive to define it biblically, though, rather than just the way that it feels or the way the world's telling us what we should chase adventure. Let's start breaking this passage down as we do kind of an overall sweep. And we'll start with the adventure of the power that is given to us by Christ. And it's this power that started to agitate the false power that was confronting Peter. So I'm going to jump into our text because we just had the beginning of it read. But I'm going to jump in at verse 5 and do a little bit of repeat and we'll pick up the story there. So on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all were of the high priestly family. Keep this in mind, that word family, think of it mob style. Okay. If you're, if you can picture the family, it's kind of what's going on here. The family. All right. We'll explain this here in a second. They were all of the high priestly family. You say, but they're very religious. I know, right? Kind of weird. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So these men sit on the Sanhedrin. It's made up of 70 or so um, high priests. And it would be our equivalent of the Senate and the Supreme Court being all mashed together. A lot of power, a lot of decisions are made on behalf of the Jewish people. In fact, 
the, the Romans wanted involvement in the capital cases. They reserved the jurisdiction for the capital cases, but the non-capital ones, they say, you deal with your own people in these matters. You know the laws that, uh, that, that will cause for good government for you guys, so you handle those. But on the biggies, we'll get involved. This is, of course, what we saw with the jockeying back and forth when Jesus was on a quote-unquote trial. And so this Sanhedrin, this council, this court is made up of predominantly Sadducees. There's Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus' primary enemy at the time of his life on earth was the Pharisees. We saw him confronting them and being confronted by them all the time. The Sadducees now in this era of the birth of the church are rising as the major threat or opposition to the gospel. Because their territory is now getting stepped on because this is spreading out. So Jesus had a following. We saw in John that he was gaining a lot of popularity. He didn't make much of the popularity and he eventually started dismissing a lot of that popularity. But they were, crowds were following him and everything. So the Pharisees were more upset about the fact that they didn't think he was upholding the law and everything. And so they wanted to put down this false Messiah. The Sadducees weren't people who were looking for an actual Messiah. They thought that the Messiah was coming as an age, which they were already in. We're not looking for one figure to come and rescue us. We believe that God has ushered in, ushered in a, a messianic age. And so we don't need this one individual to come rescue us. We've got a good thing going with Rome and we don't need anybody to come and upset the apple cart. Now, we know if you've spent two minutes in Washington, D.C., you understand the powerful elixir of that kind of political power. And they might say this is working out good for our people and everything. But the reality was they were so tightly meshed into the whole system that the Romans were like, we got these guys under our thumb. They do and say what we want. Why? Because they want to stay in the seats of power and they're not going anywhere. So Annas is the is the, the godfather of the family, you know. He's kind of overseeing the whole thing. And he's like, I want to point my son here. I want my son-in-law here. I want my son here and another son there and even my grandson there. And he's starting to, the high priestly family was all appointed and all had the same last name if they even had last names back then. So there's something you don't want to mess with this. We don't want anybody coming along and challenging our authority. We want anybody coming along and talking to us about that Jesus was the real thing or anything. Because this is going to get us in trouble with the Romans for one, but it's also going to mess up our whole uh, dynasty for two, which probably was their more important motivation. Their theological background lent them to justify a lot of this. They only studied the first five books of the scriptures called the Pentateuch. So they loved the law of Moses. They weren't into all the extra law that the Pharisees loved and all this kind of stuff. They were at odds with the Pharisees on a lot of those things. They didn't believe in angels, miracles, any of that superstitious mumbo jumbo. So we certainly don't believe in any of this rising from the dead business. So there was no resurrection. So this is why they were greatly annoyed that they were running around preaching that the reason why we can do these things that you can't argue against is done in the name of the resurrected Jesus. So when they say greatly annoyed, that means they were like supremely perturbed. They were worked up. They were agitated. And then this uh, ignition of opposition was not just with them, but it would bleed into the Romans and then the church would face unprecedented persecution for the next several centuries. So we got a bit of a picture that Peter and John are standing up to some very powerful, well-entrenched cats. 
very well backed up by the Roman government. They're not just having a meeting with some people that happened to be voted in and could be voted out in another four years. They really were standing up against an entrenched opposition to even speak up against this would be an incredible offense and would require incredible boldness. And so when they say we want to know by what power or what name you're acting, they're saying, basically, do you think you have a name bigger than ours? Do you recognize the position you're in? You're going to peddle around this Jesus of Nazareth who we killed. And that's the name you want to carry. It's a little bit different than where we are in America. Now we certainly have our various forms of persecution. Um, I think that Peter and John are clearly facing some very physical threats and things that could go on. Who knows what their next few moments would look like as as a result of how they're going to respond to this. We don't necessarily have that in terms of a a governmental opposition to where if I'm caught speaking like I am this morning, that I'm going to get thrown in jail and all those sorts of things. We all are looking at the signs. We're all looking at things like it could be happening or we notice it happening in some circumstances in Canada and other parts. And we say it's coming to America and all that sort of stuff. And we can prognosticate on all that. The reality is is that our persecution now is coming in in a sense of the things that we feel. We are either maligned or rejected. It has a tendency to hit our egos a lot of times or our perceived freedoms. And so it could be a bit that it's a little bit more psychological than it is physical and that we're seeing it play out on a national landscape that we're paying attention to in all new ways and trying to sort out what is the voice of the Christian in the political environment that we're in. But they're not at this moment, I've got security that will tell me otherwise, they are charging through the front door to put me in shackles and to give me a new padded room. Um, that isn't the reality that I live in. And so I'm not having conversations or having to have conversations like Peter and John are. Even if I went and met with the president of the United States, um, I would not be facing the same threat that they were facing at this point, if that puts it in perspective for us. Jesus says that we shouldn't be surprised by anything that comes our way, though. He said to us in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own. Love could probably be in quotes. They would have accepted you, received you and not resisted you because you don't resist them. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you because I chose you out of the world. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So Jesus is pointing out to us here, not just to endure it, not just to not be surprised by it, but to expect it. He says, if you're following closely behind me, even if I've left this world soon, then you're walking right into those same snares. A lot of times the same exact people we see Caiaphas playing a role in Jesus thing. And now we see him showing up again strongly in Peter and John. He's saying you're walking into their very same courts dealing with that same opposition. He says, don't be surprised by this. But also if you are following me, that's where you'll end up. So bank on it. Expect it. Persecution, though, it's driven by the schemes of Satan is really meant by God to produce some very specific blessings in the church. Otherwise, he'd have us avoid it. But instead, he wants us to grow from it. He wants us to be purified. 
as, as, as gold is through fire and all the contaminants and all the extras that just waste away or burned off. He wants us to, to come through it. He wants us to develop strength like a muscle as we go through difficulty. And he certainly wants us to grow in our hope of something that is to come. I was telling you, I was envisioning that house with a perfectly little manicured lawn and everything like that. That now has had to become like that. There's a day coming for me that looks like that, but it isn't here. There's a day where I can put my feet up and I won't be restless about what am I not accomplishing or what needs to be done or anything. There is that day coming, but it isn't here. Bishop Sheen once said that one advantage of being thrown on your back is that you face heaven. We also see that there is a confrontation of false power playing out in our text here. Let's go back in in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today, here's the first indictment. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, eyebrows raised, just to be clear, big chief muckety mucks, if I'm standing before you today because this guy can jump around, I just want to put that on the record. That's why I'm here, right? You want to know how we did this? By what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to you, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, unapologetically, blatant, bold, is this mic working kind of thing, that it's in his name, indictment number two, whom you've crucified, indictment number three, whom God raised from the dead, and you guys don't believe in this stuff, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Just maybe as a side note here, I think it's interesting that all of these people in tremendous power are not addressing at all the fact that this really cool thing happened to this very poor man. That all this joy and this life and this possibility is now returned to the soul of this individual and they seem to care less. Because, because what it does is it threatens their power. It threatens their comfortable seat on that, on that throne. And, and so isn't it interesting how power in the pursuit of it, the fixation with hanging on to the thing that you, you gotta control, how it causes us to overlook the needs of those that are right in front of us? There's no way that they were going to rejoice with him. Why? Because if we celebrate him, that means we lose some standing with the people. They would want to know what, what all of a sudden you guys are believers now too. They said, this is the same Jesus that you rejected as the stone that is becoming that that became, I should say the cornerstone. Now, I don't know if this is a real story. I don't know if this is a parable, but it was told way back when that as they were building the temple, they would parts of this is definitely known and true, but they would, they would quarry the, the rocks away from the temple. They wanted to keep all the noise and all the chiseling and all that kind of stuff away from the, the precious kind of environment of the building of the temple. And so they'd bring those rocks in. And so they would be cut to absolute precision. They said, you couldn't get anything probably like in our terms, like this thin as a parchment or a paper or something between them. So the measurements would come through flawlessly. They would build the temple that way. And at one point, this is the part that no one knows if this is legend or, or whatever, but it illustrates the purpose. Well, illustrates the point. Well, is that this one stone arrived that wasn't cut like any of the other ones. 
and they didn't know where it fit. They kept trying and it wouldn't fit in its place. And so rather than just rejecting it, because you never know what materials you're going to need later on or stuff, they did definitely set it aside. They get the temple just about built and you know where this is going. There's one piece missing, right? And it's what is referred to as a capstone. And so they they send message back to the quarry and they say, we're missing this one thing. It's got a very precise and awkward measurement and everything. They said, oh, we already sent that. That was the one that you received before. And they said, we know right where that is. And so they placed it, put it in place as the perfect capstone, the finished um, uh, uh, piece of of the temple. And so I tell you this parable because of what it illustrates of all that happened with Jesus. He was the one perfectly made in human form, I should say, to be what we needed. And yet he was rejected, cast aside. Nobody understood the measurement. Nobody put the order in per se. They were asking for something else. And then when the need came, it was clear that the perfect fit had been provided for them. And so this is what the apostles are saying to power this is how they're confronting them as they're like the perfect piece the one you've been waiting for the one all of mankind has been waiting for you killed him he's the one that got this guy to jump up off his bed so there's a confrontation that's happening so everything's building but they want to point out one thing that there's a singularity to true power and they say this in perhaps our our key verse here in our passage today in verse 12 And they say, and there is salvation in no one else, no other family name, no other seat of power, no other dynasty. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Are you listening, Annas? Are you listening, Caiaphas? Are you listening, Alexander? All the others. All that you're clinging to, all that you feel threatened by, you can't share his throne. The question becomes for us as we look at this incredibly powerful verse and a great one to memorize if you've ever been challenged to memorize scripture. The question for us is right now in this moment, what other name am I trusting in? You might say, oh, I'm not trusting anybody because they've all let me down. But how much are we fixated on the fact that they've let us down? That reveals that we were trusting in them to come through. What other name are we fixated in the person that's going to come through and fix things for us? This is what we do. We have a, we have a if only or the next then kind of mindset that says, if I could just get to this place, if I could just be with this person, we've got a lot of young people in the, in the audience this morning, uh, from our children's ministry and stuff. It's like, if I could just get on that team. Or if I could just get to the next grade and be with people that I could relate to. We have this, if I could just get to, if I could just have, then everything would make sense. Everything would fall into place. And we get there and that happens for us. And we realize that didn't fix my problem. We put our faith and trust in every other name except the one that is the perfect capstone. The one that is fit for our lives in our situation. So while we're comfortable picking on the Sanhedrin and saying all those bunch of, you know, power hungry, greedy people and everything like that. It's, it's true of us too. I don't know how often, how many times a day do I place my trust in others and they either let me down or they give me great joy because I've received their approval when it's Jesus who matters. It's Jesus who's present. It's Jesus who's the only one powerful enough to rise from the dead, to heal all of our situations. 
So that's a part of the adventure is in Christ's power, but it's also in his character. And this is what we're going to see on display with the men who'd spent the most time with Jesus now picking up in verse 13. Now, when they, that is the 70 very intimidating looking guys with the best robes and all the pedigree and the dynasty, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common, that really means untrained in their specific kind of rabbinic schools. It doesn't mean they were dummies. It doesn't even mean that they were being looked at as dummies, but they really were being looked down on. They had no business challenging us. You haven't been trained in our schools. You don't know the matters of the, the law and the, and the, and the different um, uh, theologies and things that we subscribe to. How are you, how are you challenging us? So they were, they were resisting that and they were kind of jaw dropped here because they were saying, these guys don't, don't even know what they're talking about yet. They're getting it right. They were astonished and they recognize, oh, we know where this comes from. Now we're seeing it. They've been with Jesus because he treated us and the Pharisees the exact same way. What did they say about Jesus? He was ahead of his years, that he was one who could school them in the temple, even though he wasn't trained in the same ways as him. Why? Because he was truth. These guys had spent the time around truth. They had watched truth in action, and now they were acting out the same way he did. And they're starting to recognize, going, okay, we know who they've been spending time with. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, now listen to this conversation. We don't know how we got this detail. It's kind of interesting to speculate about, you know, Paul was a later convert, but he would have been in the ear circle of what's going on here with the power of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't converted yet. Wonder if he came and said, oh, by the way, this is what happened in that meeting. Or there are others that are in a position here that are being favorable to to Christianity. Maybe they told, or maybe it's just the way it all kind of came out later. We don't know, but we get an insight. We go behind the closed door of these guys freaking out about losing their power. And this is what they said. They said, uh, they had nothing to say in opposition. Where was I? Verse 15, when they commanded him to leave, they conferred with one another saying in verse 16, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. Something changed. Something happened. If we go down this political path of trying to act like it was a joke, a trick, or whatever, we're going to lose. We can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, doesn't matter if it's true or not. doesn't matter if it happened. How do we put this to rest? How do we get this out of the people's view? Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, which to me seems like really short-sighted. It would have to be that a lot of these guys got the position because of who that, what family they were in. Cause then I don't see a lot of political savvy going on here. I don't see a lot of intelligence where they, they're going to tell the same guys to stop doing this who just did it. And they have the best uh, display of, of proof standing next to them. They're on the winning side of this. What they're recognizing in the apostles is the character of Jesus dripping off them and it's showing up in boldness. This is who Jesus was. He demonstrated that balance of strength and compassion. This is something else we talked about in our, at our DGT table this week was that, uh, that Jesus operated at different speeds. He didn't just have one answer for, for everybody. 
he knew the differences of his audiences. If he was talking to those who were broken, shamed, humbled by their sin or their brokenness, he gently came to them and offered them hope and restoration and rescue. He forgave them. He healed them. He made sure they were fed any of those things. But to those who should know better, who are throwing their weight around, who were leading others astray with the lies straight from the pit of hell, he confronted them. He addressed them. He dressed them down. And he told them, you will repent, you brood of vipers. Jesus, we know, was not the passive kind of namby-pamby image that we've often seen portrayed in our culture that he was... Uh, you know, I've said this before, the classic kind of hippie Jesus, everything's chill and everything's cool no matter what, man, driving my van out to Haight-Ashbury and we're just going to chill and do my, anyway, I don't know if you know any of those references. Some of you do. <laughs> that Jesus just let everything slide because it's all about love and making sure people are fed and all that kind of stuff. No, he, he stood up to power too, but it wasn't because he was just trying to be a rebel. He was a holy God. And he addressed sin and confronted it. He did it boldly, but he did it true to who he was. He did it, he did it in the nature of God, which was strategic, which was compassionate, which was open to forgiving those who repent. What happens is the more that we take on the character of Jesus, what we find is that our deeply flawed character, the one that we came in this world in, the one that we've been practicing and getting uh, down to a science that keeps getting us in trouble, that that kind of um, uh, character starts to disappear as Jesus form, as his approach, as his character starts to take over in our lives. You'll get that if you spend time around truth. You'll get that if you saturate your mind with the person of Jesus. Let him change your soul from the inside out. And we will learn to handle this persecution that we know is coming, that he promised would come. We handle it rightly when he's the one leading the way because we watched him do it. He faced the greatest persecution that any of us will ever imagine. And he did it the right way. He did it in a way that pleased his father, which is all we could ever ask. So there's a boldness in the character that they're displaying, but there's also a resolution. They're not going to be pushed off their mark. So we go back to verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, well, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, again, let just for clarification, guys, is that what you're asking us to do? If we're saying God told us to do this, you'd rather us listen to you. Is that what you're saying? You sure you want to have said that rather than God, then you must judge or be judged even verse 20 for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard And when they had further threatened them, they let them go. They had nothing else to do but to threaten them, right? So they just crank it up even more. We don't have any other tools in the toolbox. We'll just get louder, more fierce about it. But they had to let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old, which means they had a lot of time to observe him and they knew something was completely different. This wasn't just a... A, a, a fluke thing. This is a legit change. And so the people were convinced. And so the Sanhedrin was losing their impact with their tactics. So their response was, I'm sorry, but we won't shut up about this. We cannot help but to speak. And here's the essence of a testimony. If you're wondering, what do I say when I'm told or I'm encouraged to share my story or to give you speak about what you've seen and heard? 
Don't make it more complicated than that. What have I seen God do in my life? What have I seen him do in the lives of others? What have I heard directly from his mouth in written form here from his word? What is he telling me that I know is true? That's what we share. And this is a statement of defiance. They say we're not going to cave. We're not going to bow down to that. And this is what we see playing out throughout biblical history. Civil disobedience is well documented from Jewish midwives to Moses, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now Peter and John, we see plenty of biblical examples of standing up to the man. But they weren't just doing it to confront power. They said, you have given me an order that goes against the law of God and we will not comply. They heard directly from the Lord about something. So it was unquestionable. It was clear from either the word of God, the mouth of God, or from the scripture they knew. But also their convictions were consistent with their lives. They weren't cherry picking offenses like we see in our culture today or what we see going on in the church. This greatly offends me. But these other things that offend God, nah, I'm not so worked up about that. They had a consistency of their lives that the things that 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 were for a holy God, they were for the things that were against a holy God. They were against there was a consistency. But all of those instances that I just kind of rattled off showed respect and courtesy to their oppressors. They were loving witnesses, just like we saw in Jesus. First Peter two, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let me tell you a story uh, to kind of wrap this up. Uh, Frederick the Great, uh, King of Prussia, had a general, had many generals, called them all to a meeting, uh, one of his one-off meetings apparently or something. Hey, guys, come and do this. So when the king calls you, the generals come. But one general, Hans von Zieten, was committed to his church. He engaged in the practices of his church. He was faithful to them. They had communion coming up and everything. And so he felt in his conviction he couldn't skip that to go to the king's meeting. And so he said, I won't be able to make it. And so, of course, they had a lot of fun at his expense because he was the the little Christian who was going off and doing his churchy things instead of being cool with all the generals and the big powerful and everything like that. When he was able to return with them in a future meeting, the ridicule didn't stop. They were doing a lot of poking around and everything, but then it started getting really not just personal to him, but it started getting really targeted towards the God he served. They were making fun of the whole communion process and what that all means. No doubt kind of looking down on the fact that he was serving a defeated uh, leader, if you will, someone who lost in the battle or something. He had finally had enough. And his response as he stood up and addressed his king reads like this. My Lord, there's a greater king than you, a king to whom I've sworn allegiance even unto death. I'm a Christian man and I cannot sit quietly as the Lord's name is dishonored, his character belittled, and his cause subjected to ridicule. With your permission, I shall withdraw. Now, from that moment on, he received his king's respect and even received a promise to never ridicule him in that manner again. That isn't always our experience. That's why it's a story of history because it's a highlight. It's something that we can look back and see, see it worked then, but it isn't always going to quote unquote work in your world. Is it 
Sometimes you're going to swing at a, at a, at a pitch and you're thinking the Lord's calling you to stand up and say something boldly and to put on the character of Jesus and make a stand for him. And it may not be received so well. You may lose that position. You may lose that income. You may lose that spouse. You may lose all the things that you didn't think that, that, uh, that you would ever have to suffer through. And here's a guy like me up front telling you, you got to embrace the adventure. Well, it doesn't sound like an adventure, does it? These are costly decisions. But it's what we see going on with the apostles. They stood before an intimidating, powerful council that they could pay a severe price before, and we'll see that they did. And yet they spoke up anyway. They said what they had seen and what they had heard. They testified to that and nothing else. They didn't overthink it. They didn't overcomplicate it. They just remained faithful to it. They demonstrated it, though, in the humility and the respect and the character in which they saw coming from their Savior and Lord. And what's the end result? And I apologize that we've got to skip down because of time. But I'm going to just read if we can't follow it on the screen because I'm jumping in the middle. I want to just highlight something here towards the end of our text. That these men, after they had been released, they went, they told others about it. They, they put it in the context of all that the scripture had accomplished and said would happen. So they're starting to see we're a part of something big here because we're even a part of prophecy. And that gave them courage to endure. But then they prayed. And they said in verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, is not the American prayer request, Lord, rescue us from opposition? Lord, if, if you're in this, like we've been talking about ideas and plans for our church and how we're going to move forward or do whatever and everything, wouldn't we naturally just think that if the, if the red carpet's rolled out, then that must mean God's favor is shining down on us? Would we anticipate that opposition or persecution or difficulty or struggle or any of that's in our own lives or in our, in our church experience in our lives, would that be a sign that God's in this? Not really. Not the way we've been trained, not the way we've been practicing. We've been thinking that God's blessing is his favor is going to make it easy. And his open doors will be all over it if this is the Lord's leading. But instead they pray, God, just help us to continue, help us to endure, help us to not shut our mouths because it's going to cost us greatly. And while you're doing that, Lord, continue to stretch out your hand. We want to see you heal those who need it. We want to see the signs and wonders that allow us to preach your truth and confirm. And so they're asking the Lord all these things. Don't stop your work and don't let us miss it. We want to be a part of what you're doing. Isn't that an amazing prayer? I hope that challenges us this week at a church level. We're going to anticipate, Lord willing, that persecution and resistance and difficulty isn't necessarily a, a, a sign that we're doing the wrong things, but instead it's going to be a part of what the Lord wants to do to grow us up and build us. We're going to be humble about that. Sometimes we can do things that irritate other people and they cause us resistance, and it's because we've been a jerk and we deserve the, 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 uh, the roadblock. But if the Lord's doing what the Lord's going to do, we should expect that it's also going to not be received so nicely. But on a personal level, I'm asking you to resist the powerful temptation to want to avoid suffering at all costs. Phillips Brooks had said, encouraged us to not pray for easy lives, pray to be stronger. Don't pray for tasks equal to your powers, pray for powers equal to your tasks. 
I believe this is the demonstration of the apostles before us, and it's the calling for us in the church collectively, but also as saints individually. Would you stand? Let's just ask the Lord to bless these thoughts and these decisions that come next. If you're wondering what steps could you take, um, I've tried to include some promptings in the notes on the back side of the announcement sheet that you got coming in. I hope that that helps this week too. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for all that you do. I thank you, Lord, for the service of your people that we're seeing on great display here. Lord, it's amazing to be able to have new presentations uh, almost weekly about the different ways in which we can contribute to the way you're moving to meet the needs of those who may not know you, uh, to, to meet the needs of those who may not be able to pay us back or to fill our seats. Lord, you're challenging us to do the kinds of things that just give of ourselves because that's what you did. We do it under the banner banner of the gospel and of truth, Lord, and we don't want to ever shy away from that. But, Lord, we don't want to be guilty of, of not being practical and helpful personally while we share your truth. So help us to grow in these areas, Lord. Help us to engage. Thank you, Lord, for the moving of your people in the in the body of this church. And I pray, Lord, you continue blessing on them as they embrace this adventure and seek to honor you and to resemble you even as we face opposition. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.